0: Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 3, Chapter 3 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 3, read by Baird Brucher. Chapter three. X The last of our ship was loaded. It was a much larger boat than I had ever seen before, a barge with a deck and stores below. Most of the merchandise consisted of casks of wine, furs from the north, cornstones, and wooden cloth. The last item to be brought aboard was a falcon in a wicker cage. Lutgard was immediately taken with the falcon and stayed by its cage. She sat on a bundle of purple cloth like a queen on a throne, resting her elbow next to the cage with her hand on her cheek. "'I am going to marry a rich lord and hunt with falcons.' Isaac saw Lutgard dreamily contemplating the falcon. He smiled. "'You like the hunter?' he said to her. "'Yes. It does seem a shame, though, that this noble bird should be enslaved.' His eyes narrowed in irritation." It is no slave. The falcon and the hunter are equal partners. You think too much. He turned and walked away, with Derek following, with his hands clasped behind his back, continuing their conversation about the east. We passed the vineyards, and a deep forest darkened the hills around us in a narrower passage. The river twisted, and Isaac stayed at the prow, the captain, to watch the turns for sudden Rocks. The sky was overcast, and Lutgaard's face had a clouded look as well when I sat down beside her. She wouldn't meet my gaze. "'What's the matter?' I asked. She clenched her lips in hesitation, but then shrugged her shoulders to gird her courage. "'Isaac asked me to marry him.' I started in surprise, and the psalter slipped to the floor. "'What did you say?' "'I didn't say anything.' "'That's unlike you.' She gazed out at the dark hills, and I poked her with the corner of my book. "'He's very rich,' she said. Her words disturbed me less than the fact that she wouldn't look at me. "'You're considering it?' she shrugged. "'It's not like you to not know your own mind. "'I wish someone would make it up for me.' "'I wanted to say, then don't marry him.' because I felt she truly didn't want to, but I held back. Why are you unsure? I've been lucky so far. I fear my luck will run out. You've made your own luck. Perhaps you overestimate me. Why doubt yourself now? She sighed. In his gentle way, he has been reminding me of all I risk and the difficulty I face "'A woman alone, headed to a strange place with no people or prospects. "'I can't just dance my way into the king's court. "'I must be mad to think I could.' "'I don't like that he undermines your courage.' "'She smiled grimly. "'Thank you, but I have to face facts. "'What will become of me?' "'I couldn't answer. "'I struggled for words, knowing I had no easy answer to give.' The choice is between certainty and uncertainty. He offers you security, and there's certainty in being secure. You don't know what lies ahead. In freedom, there is uncertainty, there is fear. She slowly turned to me, her eyes wide in surprise, almost in fear. Yes. We sat in silence a while, until Derek came up to me and asked to be read to. We moved away and I glanced about as I read. Isaac approached Lutgard to talk. I watched intently. I could see by his face, startled, disappointed, dark, that she refused him. She held out her hand in friendship. He took it briefly and dropped it. One afternoon we were talking about Carl's court, when he sat beside me. I was asking Derek about the palace school, by reputation, the most learned in Christendom. There must be great power in knowledge, I said, just as Isaac sat beside me, and for some reason I was embarrassed he overheard me. Such knowledge I have brought you. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing, he said. This was cryptic at first. Then I realized Isaac was the source of most of Lutgard's information about Carl and his court. Isaac had brought her this knowledge, fueling her ambitions, and with it the seeds of his own unhappiness. "'Knowledge that informs choice is indeed liberating,' she said casually. He turned to her with a dark look. "You seek all power, knowledge, freedom, and security, then I wonder why you don't enter a convent. You could become an abbess and rule vast estates. Your ambition could be limitless.' With that, he rose and returned to the prow, and hardly spoke a word to us for the remainder of the voyage. When we arrived at the river port a few miles from X, Isaac was in a better mood. After the boat was unloaded, he was solicitous toward us, making sure our few things did not go astray, safeguarding our money, and offering to hire a horse for Luttgart. She preferred to walk, as it was not a long distance. I think she didn't want to be in his debt. She thanked him, and he sighed with a clearing of the throat, a slight reprimanding sound as if to say, Another bad decision I must accept. But he looked softly on her, and bowed. There was a good road of solid-packed earth through the woods to X, then out of the woods past vineyards with plump purple grapes and fields of grain in all their golden glory. We were all cheered by this fine summer day, Even Derek seemed to be aware of his surroundings. Late in the afternoon, I saw the road ahead come to an end at the largest stone wall I had ever seen. The wall stretched across our horizon like a dragon in our path. Smoke rose from within it. The wall was a dark, dark shadow breaking the golden fields and flower-dotted meadows. Lutgard's mouth was open in wonder. She turned to me with a broad smile, her brown eyes shining. What beast is this, smoking from below? Darek asked. We've come to Axe, Isaac said. Ah, yes. Like Lutgard, his face brightened with possibilities. It will be here. Lutgard quickened her pace, and I had to take her hand to keep her from running. She laughed at me, but slowed down. We stopped before the gate for Isaac to put his cargo in order. And he led the way after a quick exchange with the guards. We entered through the shadowed gate. Aix la Chapelle, swarming with visitors, craftsmen, petitioners, teeming with people whose business I couldn't fathom, idle folk who found ways to busy themselves in this bedlam of a city. This was a city. A city was something I've heard of in Bible stories. But I could not have imagined this babel. It was built of stone. And was still being built, its stout walls crowned by towers within which workmen hoisted blocks and mechanical pulleys, masons chipped with hammers and chisels, carpenters pulled on their saws, smiths pounded out nails. The great city was being raised before our eyes. I thought it noisy when we first arrived at Donad, and then Frisia. But there were nothing like this pounding and echoing toil. The workmen shouted above the noise in tongues I didn't know, that formed words from deep in the throat. The streets were paved with smooth stones, and a beggar was sweeping them in exchange for alms. Suddenly, an approaching horse shied at him, the horseman yelling oaths at the industrious beggar. Idle children ran like dogs, stopping to watch a man juggling apples, who called to a passing woman holding a basket of laundry on her head. A woman dressed like a princess walked slowly past. when I saw her wink at the juggler I knew she was a whore a girl pushed a cart of bread to sell to the workmen and the petitioners yet with all this confusion and activity it was the sense of idleness that bore upon me most of those I saw should have been at work in fields or at looms and were here instead on god knows what business children most of all brought out my pity for their idle lives with no one shepherding them the air was still, but seemed to move heavily with the stench of sulfur that wafted over the city, almost visible, so that around each corner I expected to see spraying pits of fire, the hellish source of the smell. But I learned later it was not fire that singed the air with this odor, but water people drank and bathed in. The water was considered healing and wholesome. I thought it foul. It cast over the city, squirming with so many moving arms and legs, a sensation that this was the stew-pot of hell. I was not afraid or repelled. Truly, I was impressed with the wealth, the nerve, the pulsation of the place. But the air rising from underneath, rising from sulphur springs, underpinned it all with a sinister colour. Beggars waved like thin reeds drifting in a current here and there. The men they begged from, in shining silk tunics edged in bright embroidery, were stout. I had never seen so many overfed men, and such a variety of sizes of men, the thinness of the beggars and the fat. I stared at the fat men in the market stalls, and then realized everywhere their hands were giving and taking coin. Money was everywhere. The idol the pride of honest work begged for it. The other idol, the fat, who somehow gained money without honest work, exchanged it for every good. It seemed to me this item, the coin, was the cause of all the peculiar sights around me, both the fat and the thin, the frenzy of activity and idleness. For the rest of my life, I would associate silver coin with that sulfur smell and chaos. Shortly inside the walls, we entered a market of dark wooden stalls lining the streets. Some were open to the sky, some tented and others had a house built above that extended over the street. There were river heels for sale, chickens and rabbits hanging from beams, smiths hammering, a great oven for molten glass. We walked together slowly, separately stunned, and I lingered to watch the puff-cheeked glassblower. A boy ran into me. "'Excuse me,' I assumed, he said. "'No matter,' I replied with a smile, and he ran off. As he disappeared, my bed felt lighter. He had cut off my little purse. I had given the silver to Isaac to keep safe. And it was empty, but for my lock of Edith's hair. Now I would never stroke it again. The city was roughly a circle. And everywhere I felt it was closing in on us. We couldn't walk straight through the market, but had to wind down the twisting streets. The idea of getting lost in an enclosed place, not large, not a forest seemed strange, but as the streets wound it seemed as if the interior of the city was larger than the circumference of its walls. Isaac knew the way, leading us cheerily smiling at his acquaintances in their stalls. Finally something stopped the cacophonous rout, like a breakfront in the sea. There was a long whitewashed wall cutting across the centre of the city, with large ruddy stone building complexes at each end and a gatehouse in the centre. Isaac went straight to the massive wooden doors of the gatehouse. The guard, bearded, yawning, suddenly perked up upon seeing Isaac with us. He said something guttural in a friendly voice. Isaac responded and motioned at us. We passed through to a huge courtyard, and I could see the sky again. The wall that broke our journey was one side of a covered walk that connected two complexes of buildings, Another such walkway extended on the opposite side of the courtyard. The complex to our left was a rectangular palace with a square tower on one side. On our right, the church rose, an extraordinary four stories above the world, perhaps the tallest building in Christendom, domed on top, and a striking shape. It had eight sides. Another walled courtyard at right angles to the one we were in made the front portico of the church, and a few buildings were attached to it. The palace, school, library, and scriptorium I saw later. We should offer a prayer of thanksgiving, Derek said. I'll send someone after you who speaks Scots as I take in my cargo, Isaac replied. Isaac took his things and turned toward the palace as we headed for the church. A crowd of people were entering ahead of us as a service was just starting. I would be constantly amazed those first hours discovering the church and the palace. The inside of the church was staggering. The dome rose high above, painted with Christ blessing us. Marble columns held up arches that were ribboned in red and white brick. Windows admitted colored light, and the floor was marble. Prayers echoed harmoniously through the vaults. Surrounding me were nobles in bright silk clothes. I gazed straight up again, and as my eye descended to the second story, I saw him. Carl sat upon a simple throne made of stone, looking down on us like God himself. A shaft of golden light lit his pale, almost white hair and beard. His furrowed brow was concentrated in prayer, but the concentration reminded me, for some reason, of a boy trying to work out a sum. His face was round and ruddy. A plain blue mantle stretched over his broad shoulders, fastened by a golden brooch near his thick red neck. In his intent prayer he looked apart, as if he felt himself to be alone. His family was by him, in shadow, a large group of children and youths. Suddenly I noticed a severe-faced woman behind the king. There's the queen, Lutgard said, poking me, for she was especially looking for her. The queen Fastrada was rotund, her face round and pale. When she faced us her fierce expression transfixed me, Her eyes glowed darkly beneath her black brows. She had a feline air. Not cat-like in the sense of sleek grace, but as a round, fat, and baleful spitting cat that has its run of the house. This is bold to say as a first impression, but such was the ferocity of her look. I understood some of the Latin, and I prayed what I was able to. I thanked God for delivering us safely. When it ended... The king stood and made the sign of the cross over us all. Outside a boy was waiting, who greeted us in Scots. The king will receive you, after you refresh yourselves. Come with me. He took us to guest quarters, where even the latrine was nice. I washed my tired feet. When we were finished, the boy returned. Along the covered walkway the sunlight picked out the straight columns, making a pleasing rhythm of light and shadow. As I passed each bright column, I felt I heard a note plucked on a harp. When we entered the hall, we saw Isaac, who motioned that we join him. In the flickering torchlight, I tried to learn and distinguish who was important at the feast. The stream of children surrounding the king resolved to his two sons and five daughters, children of different mothers. Carl was playfully arguing with his bright-eyed daughter, Gisela. Her eyes danced in the fiery light, as she asked if she could play the harp for the diners. And Carl was insisting she eat. "Rotrude can eat mine. Rotrude, like her brother Louis, was solemn and serious. No, I'll do as the king says, as you should. The eldest, Bertha, was the most beautiful. She was holding a baby, though I saw no husband near. ''Stop pestering,'' she said to Gisela. ''If you don't feel like eating, you can hold Nithard for me.'' Gisela took the baby Nithard, and Carl leaned over to stroke the infant's face. Near me was a man of fifty, whom I could soon tell was a favourite of the kings. He was Alcuin, sometimes called Flaccus, because, as I quickly divined, the close-knit men had pet names for one another. Alcuin seemed especially enamored of using these pet names. Carl was David, the warrior king. This name was reserved for his closest friends. The other nobles addressed him as your security or your clemency. I could tell from his accent Alcuin was an Englishman, and I asked in Saxon why the king called him Flaccus. He flatters me. That is the family name of Horace, a poet of antiquity. I scribble verse. Are you a court poet? He beamed at me. No, I am the headmaster of the palace school. Poetry is not so important to our David, except the poetry of the sounds. We'll hear them read later, or perhaps we'll hear Augustine's City of God. That's the king's favorite. Are you a monk, then? No, neither monk nor priest, but a deacon, and an outsider from York. I am a lamb among lions here, but I soak it up. More than once, he turned to me privately to explain some detail of Karl's leadership that came up in conversation. Karl was using his power to make sweeping improvements in Francia. False scales an abomination to the Lord, but a full weight is his delight. Alcuin quoted Proverbs. Carl was reforming the weights and the measures of the land, reforming the coinage too. He even renamed the months to rid them of their pagan origins. I had never thought about this before the use of power. At Donad, Jochid's power was only for its own sake, to lord over men, to take away, to control. But Karl was using his position of power to lead change, to reform and better his kingdom, in ways sweeping and fundamental. To think he would rename the Twelve Months, that was audacity, ambition governed by beneficence, It was hard not to stare at him, but he seemed so accustomed to it he didn't notice. We must ensure these schools are established. Flaccus, is there some way our missy could gather a measurement of how well the schools are teaching the boys? Could you devise an examination that could be given for their understanding of Latin? Right speech leads to right thinking, and I want no child left behind. His jester rolled his round eyes and raised his red eyebrows and said, How you take the measure of a man was a lesson to the northmen. That's the sort of lesson we like. The table laughed, though the holy men present only gave smothered smiles. I asked Alcuin what he meant. Alcuin winced. The most recent battle against invaders from the north, our warrior David, took their measure by measuring the men against the height of a sword. Those that were taller than a sword were shortened by a head. Alcuin put his hand to his mouth and quickly said, He is just a man who acts as is necessary for a king. It is not one's favorite aspect of the rule of a king, but he is a great man. Often spares his enemies. He said this last in a whisper so that the others around him might not hear, and I knew he was ashamed of having to defend him. We were interrupted by a change of subject when someone asked about a certain man nicknamed the Eagle. Alcuin's soft face glowed. Oh, I received a letter from him today. It filled my heart with gladness to hear from my sweet friend. He must have had enough of my chiding as I send him three letters for every one I receive. Alcuin recounted the letter with a childlike enthusiasm. I was not interested and stopped listening, and became aware of the food. I was delighted at the bread and roast meat dripping with juice and fat, but I was increasingly astonished at the stream of dishes that were continually brought out to us. There was beef venison and pork, roasted, stewed, and in pies. There were leeks, cheeses, pottages, sausages, fruits and walnuts boiled in honey. To drink there was ale, wine, and mead. Each dish and drink sweeter than the last. I had taken a few bites when Derek slapped my hands. Penance! I was not to eat the roast meat and stewed fruits. As an oblate, my first year had to be one of penance and denial. I took a crust of bread and dipped it in a bowl of milk and sucked at it through clenched jaws. The aroma of the juicy meal, the spice-soaked apples and pears, teased me until I nearly had tears in my eyes. Beside me, Akuin relished the mouthfuls of saucy dishes and sipped the Rhenish wine until he glowed. I noticed at a certain point he stopped drinking wine and switched to the barley water. He was not dissolute. The king preferred roast meat, saying with a chagrined smile that his daughter had told him often to give it up because he was thick in the waist, but he would not. He did not otherwise overindulge. When someone at the end of the table laughed loudly from an excess of wine, Karl gave him a dark look, and told a servant to give him permission to leave the table. "'I loathe drunkenness,' he said to us. "'I trust you are continent. "'It is a fine vintage, not to be guzzled,' Alcuin said." Admitting his enjoyment of luxury in his temperate words, he denied himself nothing of the fine meal. Alcuin was not exactly corpulent, but he was soft and paunchy. His face was full, and gleamed with good eating. He had very good teeth, and licked his lips habitually. He had a graceful way of gesturing, leaning right and left, dipping the air with a cupped hand and lifting it up, as if pulling his words from an imaginary pool. One man at the table ate like a penitent, Paulinus who broke some bread into his pottage and nibbled lettuce, but avoided the dripping meat and purple wine. He never laughed, and only rarely spoke in low tones to agree with some observation of Alcuin's or to whisper, Let me not hear, O Jesus, when the laughter rose at a barbed witticism or bawdy joke. At such moments, Alcuin deftly changed the subject, and the king shrugged indulgently at the offender. What has Ingeld to do with Christ? Alcuin asked. Some kings listen to legends of Beowulf as they feast. Our David has none of that. Timotheus. He turned to Paulinus. Let us hear Christian truth that puts legends to shame. Polinus rose and walked to a lectern. The entire room, a moment before buzzing in conversation, quieted. He opened a gospel and read of the wedding at Cana. Carl chewed and swallowed intently, nodding. Beside him, Vestrada looked grave, but her sideways glance was on her husband. When Paulinus finished reading, Gisela put her hand on her father's arm and raised her eyebrows at him. He touched her cheek and smiled with a nod. She rose and took up the lute, playing a lilting song. She was a skillful musician. When she stopped... Isaac at last introduced us, in Saxon for our benefit, most of which I understood. Saxon would be a common language between us and much of the court. I sensed awkwardness when Carl was told we were Scots. Farther down the table I saw a nobleman nudge his companion and put a thumb to his mouth and tilt his head back. Isaac personally recommended Lutgard to the Queen as someone who would be of great help with the children. Carl said, You are welcome and must stay in our kingdom as long as you are able, after your long journey. You must see my city, come with me, and you will see something grand. You must like water, I hope. He rose and dismissed the nobility and his family. Fastrada took Lutgard with her, and only the men went with Karl. Less serious now, he strode out, beckoning us. We followed him outside through the gate opposite the one we originally entered. Welcome to Aquaganum, the king said with a flourish. Passed through the gate to an extraordinary sight. Within was a courtyard taken up almost entirely by a huge bath, a man-made pond with straight sides lined with tiles. It was a hundred feet long and steam rose from the clean blue water. Carl quickly threw off his mantle and tunic. We hesitated and he waved at us laughing. We stripped and splashed in after him. The water was hot. I had never stepped into hot water before. It was fantastically pleasing and soothing. The king bounded back and forth across the pool, and we imitated him. Then after a bit, we all sat at one end and felt our cares melt away in the liquid silkiness of the water. Carl was growing sleepy, but he wanted to talk. Did you hear of Widdicund on your journey? He said no. It has been many years since I defeated him, my old relentless enemy, but I fear the people in the forest still make a legend of him. It was a long battle, searching for him and destroying his followers. I spent years after my enemy Widdicund, but I defeated him in the end, as was God's will. (laughs) He chuckled. They worshipped the tree and called it Irminsul. The Dr. Tree was the center of the world, of the universe. But my good soldiers found it and chopped it to bits. No one will hug trees in my kingdom. There will be no more ignorance or superstition. If they talk of Widdicond, it's not to extol him. They see even their greatest leader is no match for a Christian king. Loyalty is all I ask. I give much in return for it, three hundred Saxons hanged, they would swear no loyalty to me, so they hanged. I sped Widdicunt, and that is an example of my just dealings, because he swore his oath to me. But I suspect there are those who secretly praise him. Let me see, go out to the countryside and listen. You will find out what people are saying." So you heard nothing of Widdicunt? We said no. Carl caught me staring at him, for I was studying him. He smiled. You don't have a care in the world, do you? I'm not sure. You're lucky to be a monk. You'll never have a wife. Wives give you children. Carl opened his mouth wide and grinned. You see into my heart. You know how I love to have my children with me. I felt badly because I had begun to think about him in a dark way. You have many. You are well-blessed. You haven't seen all of them. I have a son elsewhere, my beloved Carloman. But you see my darling daughters, they are my precious treasure. I won't let them go. King Offa of Mercia wanted Gisela for his son. Perhaps I should have allowed it. But no, they cannot leave me. Never. After Pepin's conspiracy, Carl decided to impose an oath on all men and boys over thirteen to swear allegiance to him. Messengers, his missi, would ride all over the land to administer the oath. "'If my enemies bow down to me, if Widacund himself could take such an oath, how much more should my own kinsmen pledge to me?' Alcuin said. "'Of course they will be persuaded by your own reputation for justice.' It is better to lead people by reason than by threat, for fear may dissipate, but reason lasts. The lion has only to roar to be obeyed, for reputation is enough. The lion must be seen to strike from time to time, to put the fear of God in his subjects. At times the king grudgingly agreed with Arcuyn when in his presence. But later in the evening, as we bathed in the delicious hot pool, his mind turned to his enemies, real and imagined. There were seven conspirators, in a court of, say, a hundred, that's seven percent. If seven percent of my people are disloyal, how many Missy must I send out to find them all? If I send two Missy for every dozen countries in Frankland, His lips moved as he worked out the sum, his voice trailing off into a drowsy buzz echoing and absorbed by the warm water. He often mentioned Widdikund and retold the story of felling their sacred tree, and his round blue eyes would gaze into the distance, into the blazing bonfire his generals made of that mighty oak. The next day, after the morning service, the boy, whose name was Fredegus and who was Alcuin's secretary, brought us to the library and scriptorium, where Alcuin met us and gave us a tour. The number of books was staggering, there were hundreds, A team of men scribed from dictation, and the musical sing-song of the Latin led their pens into a subtle dance. We watched briefly, and then, not to disturb them, we went into Alcuin's office. The office was in a corner of the building, and was lit by two large windows of leaded glass. The windows and brightness of the large airy room seemed as significant to me as the power of the king's throne room. It was quite a clean room, with a carpet on the polished floor instead of rushes. A cupboard brimmed with yet more books, and on the desk was a neat array, a leather box of quills, a bound notebook, a stack of fresh vellum, chalk and ink bottles, and a straight edge. Alcuin opened a book to show us their scribing. "'This is an odd script,' Darek said. I didn't know what the difference was, but I observed the script was small, square, and compact-looking. Alcuin beamed. "'This is our script which we developed.' "'It's efficient and easy to read,' Darek sniffed. "'I don't know about efficiency. "'With labor comes grace.' "'We have so much to write, charters and the like,' Alcuin said in an apologetic tone. Darek said, "'Yes, I see. "'For charters, of course, but not for holy scripture.' Alcuin was mild in the face of his criticism. He had an open, pleasing face. "'the lines of which indicated that he smiled much. "'Though he was old, he was not as ancient as Darek, and he said, "'I defer to the wisdom of my elders.' "'May I learn to write here?' I asked. "'I saw Darek frown at me. Darek immediately thought I meant that I particularly desired "'to learn their frankish way of scribing, which I didn't mean. "'I only took the opportunity to ask because the subject was at hand.' "'Alcuin gave me a regretful smile.' THE OLDER YOU ARE, THE MORE DIFFICULT IT IS TO ACHIEVE. OUR DAVID, THOUGH HE CAN READ BEAUTIFULLY, HAS NEVER ATTAINED WRITING. THE REGRET IN HIS EYES SOFTENED, AND HIS SMILE TURNED FURTHER UP. STILL, YOU ARE NOT SO VERY OLD AS QUITE POSSIBLE. I'M SURE THE QUESTION IS UP TO YOUR MASTERS MORE THAN ME. Derrick PUT HIS HAND ON MY SHOULDER. IT WOULD BE A GREAT OPPORTUNITY, BUT WE DON'T KNOW YET HOW LONG WE ARE STAYING. ALCUIN LOOKED SURPRISED. "'Surely you must stay for some time. "'The weather is turning cold soon, and travel will be unpleasant. "'Such a long journey.' "'If we are able to obtain lapis quickly, we can return before winter,' Derek said. "'I hoped we would stay the winter, "'though not obtaining the lapis would seem to make this long trip senseless. "'It was no waste to me. "'I wanted to see all I could, for its own sake, for the sake of my understanding,' Derek continued. It was my belief you would have lapis to donate to our holy mission, dear brother. Alcuin licked a corner of his mouth as he thought. I'm afraid we haven't had lapis for some months. We have other paints, many colors to donate, but not lapis now. Darek's face turned white and he stared for some moments. Alcuin's gentle smile faded as his eyes opened wider in concern. My heart beat hard until Derek spoke. Ah! Oh. Then that is too bad." He turned suddenly and walked out of the room, and I hurried to keep up. We marched back to our guest room. Once inside, I was terrified by his show of rage. His cries were like a wounded hound as he grabbed the desk and turned it over, pulled the cloths off the bed and struggled to tear them with his hands and teeth, tangling himself in them. swaddled in the bedding, he grabbed the legs of the bed and slammed it up and down. An ink bottle just missed the window. "'our silver coins scattered like debris across the floor. "'What is silver but the devil's bribe?' he bellowed, along with incoherent howls. "'His face twisted into a living, moving mask, working into horrible expressions "'as one might imagine in knotted tree trunks at night when one is lost and frightened.' "'I crouched in a corner, speechless. "'When he was thoroughly entangled in the bedding and all was devastated,' He rocked the bed back on its feet and fell into it with a sob. He squeezed his eyes shut in his red face and stopped howling, his breath deep and hoarse. In the contrast of the sudden stillness, my own breath was loud and fast. Coins glittered on the floor like broken glass. A puddle of ink spread from one corner like the blood of a calf. He lay in a precarious equilibrium "'prone but tense, at any moment liable to go off again, "'but for now he was still as a quivering rabbit in a frozen pose. "'I slipped out and hurried back to Alcuin, who "'was still in his office dictating a letter to Fredegis. "'I entered with no announcement or courtesy, "'but as he looked up, startled, he saw my urgency. "'He listened to my story with all concern. "'When I finished, I saw a firm determination in him, "'more decisive than I expected from him.' "'He was no ditherer. "'I will send you St. John's wort from the infirmary. "'Fredegus, if you would. "'Fredegus quickly went to get it. "'Add to it his barley water or ale every night before sleep, "'and in the morning too, if necessary. "'It will soothe him. "'You must be very calm and quiet with him and not show your fear. "'Most important, don't ask him questions or correct anything he says. "'You must not argue, but instead by nodding and repeating his words, "'show that you are listening.' Alcuin sighed and smoothed the page before him. I do wish we had Lapis, as I know in his state nothing will substitute for it. But we don't, that's all there is to it. Fredegus returned with the cloth bag of powdered St. John's wort. Alcuin patted my shoulder. Come to me any time. I realized now it was up to me to deal with the situation, and that no one was coming with me. I left and went to the kitchen to beg a cup of ale. The scullery girl snickered because of the Scots' reputation for drink, but I didn't try to explain. When I returned, Derek was asleep, though his body was still stiff and tense. I straightened the room and set the ale on the desk. I sprinkled some of the brown powder into it. I sat for the day beside him until the bell rang for evening service. He opened his eyes and fixed them on me. "'I had a vision.' "'Tell me your vision.' "'A white stag crossed the frozen stream. "'The ice broke with a mighty crack. "'The current rushed him past the sharp rocks that tore his flesh. "'He was pulled into the sea, "'and on the shore the Holy Mother gathered shells and blue seaweed. "'He landed fainting on the sand. "'She reined him in with seaweed binding. "'Healed, he rose, and she climbed on his back. "'And they rode through the gates.' A blessed vision, I said with a nod. I took a chance and touched his arm. He trembled. I've brought you a cooling drink. I gave him the ale and he gulped it down. I thought my eyes are blue, and I can pluck them out to make blue ink. Would that do? I trembled to realize his madness. There is no need. I promise you we will get the lapis. Let us go to the church and pray. Derek grew sleepy during the service and leaned heavily on me. Afterward, to my gladness, fredegus offered to take him to the infirmary for the night. Daric nodded absently and accepted his supporting arm. I needed to talk to Alcuin and sought him out. He is in pain because others died, and he did not, Alcuin said. Shouldn't it be a relief? Shouldn't he be happy in some way to have survived? I asked. It is not how the soul works. He rarely speaks of the raid. Most of the time, it doesn't seem to be in his thoughts. He seems only to care about obtaining the lapis lazuli. Arguin looked far off and sighed. It is a token of his faith and his restitution. The soul seeks to atone. You are his protector, the protector of his dream. You have a grave responsibility. I don't think you understand what you have taken on. No, I don't. I'm not ready, I said. He replied. We are never ready. Not for our burdens, not even for our faith at times. It leaps into our hearts like a thunderbolt. for death, though it means everlasting life. He smiled. If I were young, I would go as you go as you will have to go into this journey. "'If you want to save him, "'you may indeed go to the ends of the earth "'to obtain this boon.' "'It is only a small blue pebble,' I said. "'It is a flint that ignites the soul.' "'We parted. "'Alone in my room last night, "'I dropped a pinch of the St. John's wort "'in a cup of water for myself. "'A taste like burnt spinach.' and fell into an exhausted sleep. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Dream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www dot, continuous dot com. Thanks for listening.